I think the churn, by the way, for an average Airbnb host is like 17 months. They start and then about 17 months later on average, they're like, damn, <laughs> right? Like I either shouldn't have been doing this. Or I need to go hire a property manager or something. It's not an easy thing to do. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Safe. Welcome to the show. Matt, thank you for having me. Love the name. Big ice cream guy. Well, we'll start you with a difficult question then. What is your favorite ice cream? Mint chip in a cup, extra chips. No doubt. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And our listeners know mint chocolate chip is my favorite ice cream just because when my dad was older or when I was younger, he was like, you need to get mint chocolate chip because no one likes it. So you'll eat it all yeah. to yourself. But big, uh, big similarities there. My dad was a huge mint chip fan as well. Um, and so that's kind of where I get that from, but he was also a butter pecan. You remember, I know that, that, that flavor back, it was kind of like that sweet vanilla with like the pecan, right? Like, yeah. And then it's always, it's always like, do I want to go for the mint kind of like breath of fresh air kind of thing? Or do I want to go for this like sweet tooth? So it's, it's always one of those two. Yeah. We're, we're recording this at the end of December and it is pecan season. So butter pecan, pecan might be season. in my future this tonight. Yeah, I, I wouldn't blame you. Have a scoop for me. Yeah, there you go. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Uh, we run a short-term rental fund, um, allowing passive investors to invest in what we believe is the next great asset class of Airbnbs, as many people know them. And uh, you don't have to do any of the work, not deal with guests, not deal with pricing, not find the deal, design the house, run the operations, do all the hard work. As many of you probably know, short-term rentals are very profitable and can be. Um, but they are a job. If, if you want one, you can go do it yourself. Um, but what we did is we took the, the job out of it and made it passive. Yeah. I love that because we've had a number of different guests on the show talk about short-term rentals. And as we were chatting before, I live in a market where it's regulated, not regulated, then regulated again. So the ability to invest in this asset class passively probably gets a lot of listeners ears up. But before we kind of get into the fund and some of the things you do, where does your real estate journey begin? So, I mean, it goes back all the way to like 2009, 10. It was like during the height of the crash. Now, granted, I didn't even know we were going through a crash because I was a naive 17-year-old, 18-year-old. Um, and, you know, I'd wanted to buy my first um, piece of real estate out of state because it's what I could afford at the time. And I didn't have all the money. My uncle had half the money. And so we... Uh, I gave him half. He bought the house. I couldn't even qualify for anything. Um, but I gave him half the money. He put in half the money. And we agreed that if we lost any money, uh, I would take all the loss and you know, he'd get all his money back. Um, I, didn't know, I didn't know that I was structuring a secured investment at the time. <laughs> that was my first foray into that. Um, everything went to shit, right? Like managing remotely, like, like 2008, 2009. Um, I mean, even then, like managing out of state was like, not a big thing yet right and let alone a first-time real estate investor so that was pretty hard um hated real estate for like the next he's like six seven eight years um and just didn't even want to look at it i uh, got into like building businesses and technology and uh landed at facebook after i was recruited because i was helping too many people beat the uh, the job interview so they were like hey why don't you come internally um, and I was like, okay. Um, so that was fun. Built uh, our second largest engineering team at Facebook from 89 to a little over 1100 people. Um, got, you know, they called it building a team. I was like, this feels like we're building a company, but that's great. Yeah. 
And uh, from there, you know, got into real estate again because I found myself a needing tax benefits first and foremost, living in California, working in tech. Um, and second of all, um, you know, I had an opportunity to really understand the space a little bit more, uh, invest some of my own money. Um, and over time, I wanted to become more of an operator myself, be active. Um, and I saw a huge opportunity in short-term rentals where 99% of the competition was everyday people, no technology, no automation, um, bad design, bad everything really. Like, you know, again, coming from Facebook, like we're kind of trained to like see these opportunities as, as people used to call it like big blue, right? Um, and, you know, these larger companies and how they can aggregate data. So, you know, Sabrina and I really just saw an opportunity to do better in this space. And that's how we got here today. That's awesome. So was your first deal after the 2009? So when you first started at Facebook investing in real estate, was it short term at the time? So uh, I started at Facebook in just like 15, 16, 17, something like that. Um, yeah. And uh, I was still in high school when I bought my my first property with my uncle. Um, so short-term rentals didn't come to be until 2021, 2020. Yeah. Um, gotcha. And a lot of it was we saw this post-pandemic shift, right? Like one of my earlier mentors um, actually at Facebook, one of the things that he would always tell me, especially in the world of tech, is go with the headwinds mm -hmm. right even even if it's early right and like when it's early it's the best time to invest but it's the scariest time right amazon amazon was a great indicator of self-storage back in the 90s and dot-com boom because people started needing more things but a lot of people didn't see that right homes started getting larger right to an extent families started getting larger you needed more space for things and so what we believe is that mobility and flexibility is the future and therefore flexible living. We actually believe the American dream in many ways is very much dead, right? It's not about owning your own home anymore. I think it's going to be owning a flexible home of the future. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I think of like our generation, I'm going to lump myself into a younger generation with you, but I, <laughs> I think our generation likes the ability of flexibility more than they do the idea of stability. And so yeah. what that can mean is if you can Zoom and work from home and do all these sorts of things, then you might be able to work from maybe not Nashville where I'm located, but maybe I move up to Columbus, Ohio, or stay in the different time zone and move down to Florida for a couple months. Our company actually has a policy around that where we can work 90 days from a remote location. Or I think it's 30 days from a remote location as long as you submit for it. So I agree with the, the trend there. Um, but there's a lot of technology companies now that are asking people to come back into the office. Obviously, Elon Musk with the acquisition of Twitter is a big proponent of it. We're starting to see Apple with that. How do you see that trend playing out or that reverse back to the mean playing out? I think you're going to see people go back to office, but like that's first and foremost, not the type of traveler, for lack of a better word, that we target. Like we don't target business travel. Most of our homes are like four bedrooms or larger. Like we're talking families, larger groups. We don't compete with hotels, um, split between metros and like destination towns. But the shift back to the office, in my opinion, is inevitable. But I think the way you shift back to the office is what's important to look at, right? I don't think you're going to see like hard, rigid, five day a week, like got to be in by 9am every single day ever again. Um, and if you are that company, I think you're going to lose a lot of great talent, right? Like I think what the pandemic did is it was almost like this drop of water onto the US and really on top of the world where it just hits and then everything dispersed, right? Like people all of a sudden were like, I don't have to be here. I can be near my family. I can be near somewhere that I like to go. 
I can go take a weekend trip and work remotely for four days on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's okay. It's actually, I'm not fearful of asking my boss to do that. Right. And I think these, like these behaviors are what people are going to naturally go into. And I think naturally also with, you know, trust in corporate America and trust in like government, I think over time um, seems to have gone down, right. Where it's like, you, you got to do it for yourself. You, you, you want things done for yourself. I think you're going to see the rise of creators and entrepreneurs and one man businesses and one woman businesses and um, just one person enterprises. And like these people who are doing side jobs are apparently working two corporate jobs at a time, as I've yeah. seen on TikTok from time to time, but like all those trends, I think in aggregate are going to push this dispersion of people being way more flexible. And I think the employers that are winning are the ones who are more flexible. Yep. Yep. Well, before we jumped on, you mentioned that you, so you just talked about the different type of properties that you're looking at, four bedroom, five bedroom. But before we jumped on, you were talking about two different types of markets. How do you see the short-term market? So I think, you know, when we were talking about it, we were briefly touching on like regulation specifically, right? Because that's a hot topic. And it's very easy for people to, I think, pay attention to mass media about really any topic. Um, But let's talk about regulation of short-term rentals. You know, you see like, oh, Airbnbs, we hate Airbnbs, or like it's going away, it's being regulated nine times out of 10 city centers, city of Austin, city of Los Angeles, city of New York, Miami, Boston, something, right? Some major metro where there's like huge density problems, shortage of housing. Um, and in many cases, because of the density, you see a lot of multifamily in many of those locations, right? Because you need like housing, right? To support uh, that in addition to single family. Um, those are markets first and foremost, they don't even pencil, not for us at least. So we don't invest in like city centers and metros, right? Like we're investing in really two kinds of markets. The first one being markets where short-term rentals are allowed by right. For example, the state of Arizona, they passed a bill that allows you to always have the right to run a short-term rental unless you're in HOA. It is a state law, a state bill, it's a SB 119 or something, right? So you, you have full right now, there's permitting, there's rules or safety, like, of course, all those things you got to follow. Those are things that we believe in and we empower and we encourage in all these cities. And secondly, our markets where the local market has been operating vacation rentals or short-term rentals for decades, if not years on end, where the local economy is so dependent on this permitting process and revenue as a revenue driver for the local market that's never going to go away. For example... The Poconos, which is about an hour and a half outside of New York, I mean, $3 billion plus in revenue funds schools and roads. So you're telling me that they're going to lose $3 billion out of a probably, what, 4 or $5 billion budget? I mean, things aren't going to get done, <laughs> right? And so because of that, those things are regulated um, and, and encouraged, right? We actually, people often see regulation as a bad thing. We see regulation as a great thing. We want there to be rules. We want there to be process. We want there to be revenue drivers for local businesses. We want there to be drivers of revenue for economies and metros so that they can continuously improve resources, education, taxes. Those are all good things um, in a world where capitalism should be encouraged. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've heard Zuckerberg say the same thing around Facebook or Meta. Um, if you tell me what rules to play within, I'm happy to play by them. But if yeah. you guys aren't going to give me rules to play by, then you can't be mad if an outcome doesn't happen your way. 
And as we're talking, the whole FTX debacle is happening right now. And a perfect example of had that thing been regulated, then they probably couldn't be stealing money from one arm to pay the left arm, et cetera. Yeah. And I think, you know, like on the on the note of the FTX stuff, right, I think a lot of that is just early market adopters oftentimes get scrutinized, right? I mean, like you can you see this in almost every single market. You see this in um, you know, MySpace became came before Facebook, but like it wasn't welcomed with open arms the way that it did, right? Um, you had um, you know, music platforms before Spotify and Apple Music, right? Like and, and th- you know, people had to pave roads and ways for others, even in the syndication space, right? You've had things that um it's it's people really gotta remember the Jobs Act um, really came out in about 2016. It's not that new, or sorry, it's not that old. Right. So it's like, you know, there are still things that people are being educated on. And, you know, I think the world of private investing, especially enunciated by the things that that's happening with like FTX and the crypto world, um, should be regulated. Right. And there should be clear, identifiable rules to play within, because I think that encourages people to find uh, and trust the right people. Right. But if when when rules aren't clear, it's hard to justify if someone did something wrong or right right at the end of the day. And I think those are really important things to consider. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things with your technology background, I've heard you talk about is the ability to leverage technology to optimize your properties more efficiently, as well as find and source deals more efficiently. So I kind of want to take that in a two-part question there. Can you talk to us a little bit about how are you using technology today to even find uh, these hidden gems out there in the marketplace? Yeah, so we look at it like a huge top of wide funnel that drills down to a buy box, right? So let me kind of start from the top. Uh, our software allows us to, because right, we're part software, part real estate company. We're a real estate company that uses technology, which is very different in, 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 the, in the private equity space. Um, but what we do is we, first and foremost, market map uh, cities and locations where we have an interest in. So let's say there's a market that we see data on that is somewhat encouraging. What we'll do is we'll start market mapping. And really what this means is we're taking and gathering all the unstructured data, meaning all the listings that hit the MLS and things along those lines, gathering it into our software, understanding it, pulling data and comps automatically on it, understanding how supply changes in that market, right? Because for example, a market for us to be investable needs to have enough supply and enough demand, right? It's an equilibrium of both. And so from there, we also identify what type of property is coming on market. For example, in this market, are a bunch of five-bedroom homes coming on market, right? Or is it two-bedroom homes or three-bedroom homes? And then next after that, we, we identify what's the right type of property, or in, in our case, the most profitable property in a price-to-rent ratio to buy in this market, right? And so what we typically want to see is that, for example, five-bedroom homes come on market the most. And let's say five-bedroom homes are the most profitable, theoretically. That's a good and a bad thing. That means it's there's less of a competitive moat but there's enough supply right and so usually it's not that crystal clear right we have to make inferences about certain things but once we have an identification of the type of property we want to buy and by the way when i say the the buy box i'm talking about bedrooms bathrooms lot size amenities like all these types of things we're very much in tune with what we need to to do to a said property and really what we're trying to do is not reinvent the wheel we're looking at data as is in say a market like Scottsdale, we wanna see that, you know, if we see that five bedroom homes with a pool on a quarter acre lot with these types of amenities are absolutely crushing it, we wanna buy 20 of those, <laughs> right? Like it's not rocket science. And then it's about being able to identify those properties as they come on market 
Um, because 94% of the time when we underwrite a property with our tech, it sucks. So how do we not spend 94% of our time on deals that don't do that don't happen? So that's really what on the top end, our software is mapping between the market, between the actual assets, the buy box to really give us direction to where we're going. Are you saying it's not rocket science because you're wearing a NASA shirt today? <laughs> I think that's just uh, an ironic. The irony comes with that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, just because I, we typically have technology professionals that are listening to the show, are you comfortable talking through some of the tool sets you're using to really siphon down that data to your buy box? Yeah, I mean, from from a tech stack perspective, right? Really, what we're doing is we have open access to the MLS, right? And we have that through our partnerships. Like, for example, one of one of the members that, that sits on our board uh, used to be the SVP of Analytics at Realtor.com. Um, Scott Shatford founded AirDNA, right? And he sits on our board as well, which gives us a little bit of better exposure to certain tools and resources. So really what we're doing is because we have open access to the MLS through several APIs and partnerships, once those deals go live, right? And they hit the MLS, our software ingests it, pulls the data, pulls data comps and data sets, right? John, who's our head of data also does this. Um, yes, we're a private equity firm with a head of data. I think a lot of people ask me that. Um, and with that, we're then able to get all the, take all this raw, unstructured data and make sense of it. And then secondly, behind that, we're using elements of text recognition software that's allowing us to ingest unstructured words, right? Like in, in any listing, an agent is usually listing. I mean, if you've, if you've read a real estate listing, it's very markety. right? Mm-hmm. Like, look at this beautiful fireplace. You're 10 minutes away from the grocery store, those types of things. So what we're trying to do is understand if something mentions fireplace, for example, does that correlate to a higher or lower cash on cash, right? Because in certain markets, those things are actually pretty um, prevalent. For example, in the Poconos, if you are, um, if it mentions like the ski resorts, those properties oftentimes do better Yep. more often than not. So all of a sudden we're like, this property has lower risk or higher potential than say property B, C, or D. Right. And because for us, we're going to buy, you know, 75 to 150 homes a year. Like people look at that and they're like, that's a big number. Like that is nothing in, in terms of the scheme of the markets that we're in or the, or the size. Um, you know, so we want to be able to buy the best possible property. I think I know how I'd answer this next question, but um, we've seen Open Door come into this space and try to technology data driven. Um, weed out the noise and not do very well. We've seen Zillow try to do the same thing. So how can you, I guess, use data to make more efficient decisions when they failed in this this type of similar market? Well, I want to be clear on a couple of things, right? Open Doors basis of a technology was that you didn't need a human. Yeah. Right. Um, Zillow, I believe similarly, you didn't need a human. We completely disagree. Right. Like our data and our technology and our tools literally are there for one reason to aid our humans in making better decisions. It's a very different philosophy. And that's why I mentioned earlier, we're a real estate company guided by technology, not a technology company that does real estate. Right. Open Door and Zillow, both tech companies in many capacities, tech multiples with how they were perceived. Right. Not real estate backed uh, holdings of, of sorts. So for us, it's you know, we have our head of acquisition, our head of data. We just, uh, we, uh, um, what's his name? John is our newest hire. He's previously the uh, head of revenue at Vacasa when they took him from a thousand doors to 38,000 doors, right? He's joining us. So like what we believe is arm incredible people 
with incredible data sources as accurately as possible and let them use that data to make decisions. Because here's, here's what's going to happen. And this happens all the time. Let's say you find a deal. The data says it's fantastic. And I just cannot tell you how many times this happens. You look at a deal and the data, you're like, oh my God, right? We get alerted. It looks amazing. You go look at it. It's a dump. Okay. It is a literal dump in the middle of nowhere on the wrong side of the street in a bad neighborhood where no one's going to want to stay. Now, if you're open door, right, or you're using a, a software like an open door and it just buys it, that's a problem, right? S software cannot tell you what's inside that house, how old those walls are, right? Like how old the plumbing is, what kind of plumbing it is, right? And if you should consider buying it, and more importantly, because we're also in the hospitality space, right? We're running an asset that people want to feel like they can feel safe in and enjoy the experience. They have to actually want to go there. That's not something that a piece of software is going to be able to tell you. Great answer, by the way, because I think that is the difference. Um, and I think as we continue to evolve down this AI journey, people are fearful that AI is going to run the world and do bad things with it. And I view it as a supplement to what humans do. Um, are you all VC funded at all? Have you raised any capital? Fully bootstrapped. I think that's a big difference too. And yeah. one of the things that I want to make sure I put on the record since it's on the internet and be there forever is that when money is cheap, free and abundant, people are going to be forced into trying different things and new markets and have to deploy that capital in order to get a return on it for their investors. When you're bootstrapped, it's your dollars. So you were very much more cognizant of where you're deploying that capital than not. So yeah. uh, fant yeah. fantastic answer. I would also add one of the, we, we actually had an offer, <laughs> probably several offers at this point, uh, to go and accept venture. And a lot of our investors, actually, one of their most common questions is, can they invest in the business, right? In addition to our fund and on the venture side, we've always turned it down. And I'll tell you why. In addition to what you said, Matt, the second you accept venture money, the outcomes have to be different. And it's not a bad thing. Look, I, I'm nothing bad against accepting venture money. It's just... The outcomes have to be different, right? Like today we are prioritizing sustainable returns, sustainable growth for ourselves, for investors, for everyone involved and doing things in an ethical growth oriented way where we do care about profitability, right? Now, and in a world where you have just venture and you know you take a $5 million check and it's like grow at all costs, it's like grow for who, right? Is it at investors expense? Or is it at the VC's expense? And oftentimes those are not the same answer, right? So we wanted to be very cognizant of that. And that's why we're fully bootstrapped the way we operate. Love it. So we talked about finding the deals. Let's switch gears now and talk about operating. How are you using technology today to run a more efficient operation in the short-term space? First and foremost, before we even use technology, right? We have to build a better product, right? And I think, you know, coming from the tech world, you know, there's a saying like, if you build it, they will come. Uh, yes and no. In our space, like there's a we're, we're on a marketplace like Airbnb and Verbo and some other platforms. But first and foremost, our product, our design, our amenities are stand out far and above everything else that's in the, in the industry in that market. And because of that, it gives us a natural leg up in terms of performance. Right? Those are things that start from the beginning. Now, when it comes to technology, like we use all the greatest tools out there that a lot of people probably know, things like RankBreeze and Price Labs and you know Guesty and like all those types of things that I'm sure people are aware of. But it's not the tools themselves, it's how you use them. And I'm a big believer in people. Like, again, half my team was headhunted specifically for their knowledge in this space. Like, if you ask me what our number one strength is, I wouldn't tell you it's technology. I would tell you it's the people we have on our team, right? It's the fact that 
Um, John, who's our head of data, is incredible. He'll probably be one of the only player people in the industry that can dissect markets the way that he can down on a granular level to help us understand what to buy. Taylor is one of the big best snipers when it comes to acquisition that I've ever seen. Um, another John uh, who uh, co-leads us on revenue management, right, can understand markets and run 170 por property portfolio at a time, taking the only company in the space that's gone public, which is Picasso, and was with them for seven years, right? So he's really scaled through seasons um, and understanding how startups grow and scale. But it's how you these people use these tools and dynamic pricing and understanding how to price and um, you know, we made a small tweak after Airbnb's most recent algorithm uh, algorithm change, and we just had our biggest, best week ever. But does your average user, which the 95% of them are, is doing this as a side gig, right? Do they know how to use, you know, these tools? And more importantly, they don't know how to feed into the algorithm. Google has an algorithm, how you rank, right? First page, second page, third page, fourth page. Airbnb also has an algorithm, how you rank. Right. And because we understand it from a technical perspective, all Airbnb is a product with a user journey of which Airbnb wants to guide users through a journey so they can take an action, which is usually to book a place. So because we understand that technical infrastructure, we're like, how do we feed into it? How do we put ourselves where there's eyeballs? And by nature of gravity, we often do better, which in Q3, I believe we generated a little over 50% better, uh, more revenue and over 30% more occupancy than the average home in our market, right? And so those are just how people and humans and technology come together. Technology enables us, but at the end of the day, it's the humans that make decisions. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point around basically just doing it every single day. And this is our business. Yeah. So we understand it a lot better because I have a friend here in Nashville that does it. And I asked him one time, I was like, hey, when's the last time you updated his, your pictures or anything to your listing? And he was like three years ago. Well, yeah. chances are that they are prioritizing things in the algorithms <laughs> if you did that. Um, I've also heard you give some tips on how you can improve a property if somebody's out there and they're running a short-term business today. What are some of those things that you've seen that help you improve the um, quality and the algorithm, I guess, is the best way to ask that. I mean, I think like a, a common common things that we see that are just like, I don't, I, I can't give you a reason why someone doesn't do them. So I'm going to call those out. If you're someone who doesn't have professional photos, you're letting people like me just walk all over you first and foremost. <laughs> okay. Like pay the 600 bucks, <laughs> go get some professional photos done. Uh, secondly, using dynamic pricing. Like if you don't use dynamic pricing and you're pricing your weekends, like your Mondays, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. And more importantly, probably you're leaving a lot of occupancy on the table as well. Right. Which is naturally impacting your revenue. Um, third, always, 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 always understand who your avatar is. I think people in many times in real estate and short-term rentals specifically, because oftentimes they could be second homes, you're designing and building and running the home as if you're the guest. That's your first problem in business is when you get emotional about it and you're like, you know, you, you, it looks amazing. You designed it. You would love staying here. But then you realize that the avatar for your market is a eight person bachelorette group who's coming and they don't want what you like, right? Because that's not, you, you missed on the connection, right? And so right yeah. there, that's a huge expense to get for you to fix. So really understand your avatar. Um, and then also, you know, a, a fourth thing, and I'll kind of give this as a bonus is really ask yourself, why are you running a short term rental? I think that's a big one that a lot of people, uh, I think the churn, by the way, for an average Airbnb host is like 17 months, 
right? Um, you know, they start and then about 17 months later on average, they're like, damn, <laughs> right? Like I either shouldn't have been doing this. I need to go hire a property manager or something. It's not an easy thing to do. So if you're going to do it, ask yourself why you're doing it. And sure, tax benefits could be one of them. There's no nothing wrong with that. But like, why are you doing it? If not, but you want exposure to the asset cost then consider alternative options, you know, companies like ours or, comp or other companies online that you can go partner with and get similar benefits but not take on this additional risk or liability that, you know, you're probably giving yourself anyways. Yeah. And that's why I was so intrigued and so happy to get a chance to connect with you is because you offer a way to passively invest into this space. I see it coming. I know the benefits of it. I would love to be in markets like Scottsdale or the Poconos, which are outside of my geographic location. I see the value in that. I just don't have the capacity to handle one more ball in juggling yeah. or one more plate spinning. So um, that's why I'm super excited to connect. So you are raising funds to help uh, uh, people passively invest in short-term rentals. Can you talk a little bit about where you are in that journey and and uh, we'll take it from there? Yeah. So uh, we're recording this in December. So we are wrapping up our first fund, uh, which will land right around that $30 million plus mark. And uh, in 2023, we'll announce our second fund, probably in January, uh, when this episode is probably released sometime in Q1. Um, but you know, our idea is to really launch a new fund every year, a new portfolio every year. And you know, our business plan, for lack of a better word, is we believe single-family homes are mispriced assets, right? We believe if you can take a single-family home that you buy based on value, convert it to this business revenue generating short-term rental than asset that's generating two, three, four times as more revenue as a long-term rental, that institutions and uh, retail turnkey investors alike will buy this asset for the cash flow and the yield. And we really have a few exit options in, in our future. One could be you know rolling everything up and selling to an institution, which we've had significant interest already. Um, because remember, they can't do what we do. Blackstone, BlackRock, family offices, it's really hard for them to build a team like ours and go buy a $600,000 asset at a time. What they want to do is buy 60 or 600 of them at a time and give you that big, right. big check with a stabilized deal. So we're, all the sweat equity that we're doing will get rewarded in the future. Secondly, we could sell them openly on the MLS, which we did eight times this year, right? Just testing out the market. And people want to buy turnkey STRs like it's hotcakes, right? So we, we picked that up very quickly. Uh, thirdly, which was a really interesting one because we got approached by this is all our properties uh, uh, fall under SBA loans. So because each one are real estate backed assets, you can go get 90% leverage by a real estate backed business, right with high stabilized yield. And now all of a sudden, you can become a business owner and start to grow your short term rental portfolio. And lastly, we have partnerships with companies like arrived homes, uh, Ryan Alejandro are fantastic partners, and we can disposition through platforms like them, which are in the prop tech space, um, and allowing people to buy fractional real estate for as little as 100 bucks. Right. And so, um, you know, people have thrown out like, are you going to go public and STR REIT and all those types of things? Um, you know, we don't know where our future is going to land exactly. But what we do know is we're building a lot of value by adding and creating this conversion from mispriced asset to not. And many people will recognize the value in that and they'll pay the premium because what we do is hard to scale. And that's the value that you capture. Yeah. And you beautifully uh, laid out a number of different exit strategies. And as we go into 2023, I think it's going to be a little bit of a choppy first six months to the year um, at the very least. And anytime you're going into a choppy market, it's important to know that you have an exit strategy and more importantly, that you have multiple exit strategies. So a uh, fantastic way. I'm super inspired by your business. 
Yeah, thank you. And, and, you know, I think one thing that is very different than like multi that a lot of people don't understand about what we do is all our debt is 10 years or longer. So, you know, when you talk about exit strategies, you know, one thing I have to remind our investors is one of our exit strategies is just to hold for a yeah. decade, right? Because we're not for sellers. And because we're not for sellers and we have a great DSDR, uh, for many of you that don't know that, it's a debt service coverage ratio. Like our debt service coverage ratio many times can be three, four, five, six X, right? And because that's the case, um, you know, worst case is we hold for a decade, we generate really great cash flow. We sell for a low teen IRR over a decade. And if that's what we're doing and that's what our best outcome was, what I would ask anyone else is if that's our worst outcome, realistically, and in our opinion, what's happening in the world? Everything is relative, right? And so, and I think that's what a lot of people forget is like people always want home runs. And I always ask them like, everything is relative, right? If, if the market is down 30% this year and you broke even, that's good, right? Yeah. You can't control the market. You got to understand how to navigate the ebbs and flows of the market. If the market's up 30% and you generated 0% this year, that's relative, <laughs> yeah. right? So like everything is relative to where what's going on in the world. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I look like an idiot not jumping into the crypto phase last year and was just steady Eddie getting my 7% returns, clipping coupons. And then all of a sudden, everybody that's, you know, down 90% on whatever stock or whatever uh, meme out there is is getting crushed. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm a, I'm a believer in all investments generally that the, the yes. work I'm an owner of crypto, like I'm a believer in that space. But naturally, I'm, I'm a believer in diversification, <laughs> yes. right? And just understanding what your risk tolerance looks like over time. Yeah. Well, I want to shift this now to our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book? Or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? It's actually right next to me. It's a book called Traction. Let me grab yes. the, uh, the, uh, the Gino Wickman and Traction. And the reason that we, I really like this book recently is because we, we've grown so fast. And what we're trying to understand is how to continuously narrate a story about the traction that we're experiencing. Yes. Beautiful book if, if you haven't read it, if no one's read it. Uh, our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the things that you do every day? Um, I'm a master time blocker, um, first and foremost. So I control my calendar with the utmost responsibility and uh, spend time with my kids. And I think I, I hope that 10 years from now, uh, you know, I'm a family man first, as I am today. And uh, they remember that. I think it's important to me. Yeah. How old are your kids? 18 months and eight weeks. So we've got two boys. <laughs> youngin. <laughs> two youngins. So, I, you know, they might not remember much right now, but I hope the decade from now they remember some things. Love it. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Just do it. And that is not just stealing it from Nike, but literally just do it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are, they psych themselves out. It's mental. Um, go for it, do it, make the mistakes. I can't tell you how many mistakes I've made. Um, and I probably will continue to make, and, uh, that's okay. Right. Just make cognizant awareness of your decisions and generally you'll end up just fine. Yep. Action breeds momentum. Always. Our, our fourth one is, what is the thing you're most proud of in your life? Definitely being a dad, no doubt. You know, I think for me, fatherhood and running a business actually cross very similar responsibilities. Um, I'm responsible for my team. I'm responsible for my kids. I'm responsible to, for my wife. And I'm responsible to our investors. And I think that's, a, that's an important ideology, I think, as a leader I have. And 
it's really what drives me every day, right? By providing for one, I actually provide for all. And that's a really great, um, you know, consensus that kind of goes around. Our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know, I grew up in Los Angeles, huge Laker fan. So my, my answer here has to be Kobe, um, oh. to, the, to, to the late Kobe. And, uh, you know, I've always admired his mentality, right. Of just getting it done, playing to the last second, hustling, practicing when no one's watching. Right. And I think a lot of people, um, may look at our growth and, and see, wow, you know, what a miracle or it's been a year and here's where you guys are at. And, you know, I think Sabrina, myself and the entire team will probably tell you that we've been trying, we, 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 we've been working in the shadows for a long time and we're really excited to see where we're at today, but more importantly, we're excited to take investors on for the ride that we hope to be on. Nice. Well, Steve, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about the things that you've got going on at TechVestor, where's the best place we could point them? They can go to techvestor.com. You can reach out at steve at techvestor.com. Our entire team is generally fairly open and transparent in everything that we do. Um, always happy to educate and answer questions on this myth of what STRs really are. And uh, if you're considering doing it actively, let us talk you out of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that last point. Well, thank you for being on the show and look forward to seeing your continued success. Yeah, you as well too, Matt. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.